Hi, my name is Gabriel Huet, and welcome to Philab Podcast, where we will explore the complex world of Canadian philanthropy by interviewing and showcasing the lived experience of multiple actors in the sector. The discussion about perpetuity in the philanthropic sector stems from this idea that grant-making foundation might have to rethink their existence, as they might actually be part of the problem they're trying to solve. There are many reasons why an organization would want to prepare its own disappearance, and in this episode we will explore one of them. For this month's episode of the podcast, we are visiting the concept of perpetuity with Linda Menson of the MAVA Foundation. Mava was born out of the passion and vision of Luke Hoffman, a naturalist who believed fiercely in the protection of the planet Wild Splendors. Mava is a family foundation that decided to implement a sunsetting process. This means that the foundation was bound to cease its operation at a specific time. Linda is here to explain why the founder took this decision and how it was executed. As usual, I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so thank you for coming in today. Uh, we have Linda Menson uh, as a guest who uh, will present uh, the MEVA Foundation. So could you just uh, briefly introduce yourself and what is the MEVA Foundation, please? Yes, hi, thanks for having me here. I'm Linda Manson. I'm the Director General of the MAVA Foundation. We're a Swiss-based family philanthropic foundation focused on supporting work in nature conservation and sustainable economy in different parts of the world. Mm. And could you give us like an example of a project that uh, MAVA Foundation has been uh, implied in? Yeah, well, lots and lots of examples. We, we funded about 1,500 projects over our last 28 years. Um, an example would be in West Africa. We work on coastal and marine issues from Mauritania down to Sierra Leone in West Africa. And so one example would be working on uh, marine protected areas there or working on sea turtle conservation mm. or sea bird conservation. And so for the topic of today's conversation, uh, we are uh, going to talk about philanthropy and perpetuity. So as it, as it was said, uh, MAVA Foundation has a specific view on uh, this kind of issue. Uh, so I would like to know uh, from your part, what is the position with regards to philanthropy and perpetuity at MAVA's Foundation? Well, we are uh, going to be closing this year. So we, we are a limited life foundation, not technically spending down because we don't have an endowment, but we will be wrapping up all of our grant making this year and then closing administratively next year. So that is the decision that we've made. Um, I'd mm. be hard pressed to say we have a position on it in that <laughs> you know we're in evangelical about everyone should do it. Although I do think it's a question that every foundation should pose um, mm. to, to look at, does, does it really make sense for us to operate in perpetuity or would spending down or sunsetting our foundation be a better option for various reasons. Mm. And why did the MAVA Foundation implement a sustaining process for 2022? 
a sunsetting process. We we um, it, this was planned by our founder. So Mava was set up by Dr. Luke Hoffman, who was the grandson of the founder of the a big pharmaceutical company Hoffman La Roche, which is now known as Roche. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a passionate naturalist, really interested in conservation. It started with interest in seabirds and spread into conservation in general. And so he started MAVA just as an expression of his personal passion and interest in nature conservation. And what we have done over all these years has been an evolution of that interest, but really grounded in what he his vision for what should happen in terms of nature conservation. And he he was quite a visionary, both in terms of conservation and in my view, in terms of philanthropy. And he planned for the end, Uh, not from day one of the foundation, but starting about 15 years ago, the end was planned. And his reasoning was that he was not seeking to establish a permanent institution. And he wanted to give the freedom to his children, his heirs to pursue their own passions um, and not be tied to what it is he said he wanted to do. So I, I think that was really, well, I'll use the word again, visionary in, in terms of, of seeing how it could work, seeing how it would play out. And I, th- I think it was a smart decision. I really believe that family philanthropy, and I'm involved in family philanthropy, should be very much grounded in, in family passions. You know, They need to be really enthusiastic, embracing, and passionate about what a foundation is doing, not doing it because it's what daddy liked and we should just keep doing that forever because daddy said so you know it it, it, it does to make keep it a alive lot and innovative and experimental you really want to have that that passionate interest that goes along with it because mm. i could see that like fire just in, extinguish from one person to another but he has the obligation to continue the prior mission and that just uh, that affects the uh, uh, efficiency afterwards, in a sense, if you're not passionate about the project. It, it, it could. There's lots of ways of handling this transition to mm-hmm. next generations of families in family philanthropy. This is one way, is closing it down and allowing people to do their own thing. I know that many other foundations have found ways of doing that successfully. And usually it's because they're able to accommodate the interests of of the new member family members coming on board, being involved in the foundation. We were not able to do that. Um, we had a, a, a mission that was strictly aligned to the environment, environment broadly speaking, but strictly aligned to the environment. It's in our statutes. We weren't able to change that or broaden it. So we couldn't encompass the interests of other family members. And so for us, the best decision was to close down and um, free up the funding to be used in other ways by the family members. Mm-hmm. Other foundations, may have more room to maneuver on that in in adapting to changing societal needs and changing interests of the family members. So for us, this turned out to be the right decision. I I understand what you're saying because the the start or the creation of MAVA was made so that it couldn't change in a sense. So that's why they chose to use the sunsetting process. Could you uh, just run us through the process of how it looks uh, over the from the creation to 
this year, which is your yeah. final year of existence? Yeah, it's so much trickier than you would imagine it to be. <laughs> Let me just start with that. It's, it's very complex to wind down. Um, and if I was going to advise anybody entering into this process now, mm -hmm. it would be to start planning for it as early as you possibly can. Yeah. We got serious about our planning on our closing about seven years ago. So, you know, around 2015, when we were thinking of our, our last strategic period, our last strategy, and decided it was really time to get serious about planning for the closing, about communicating with partners. And we, we ramped it up then. And the feedback I got at the time was, oh, you're so lucky you're doing this so far in advance. Um, and that was part of the time. And the other part of the time was, ah, don't you wish you'd started it even earlier? Um, so my advice would be to start very early and plan from the beginning whether you're aiming to close or keep operating in perpetuity, because it really makes a difference on some of the, the decisions you make along the way and how you work with partners and how you fund partners. And just an example of that is we, um, in the early days, had a, a, a tendency to not necessarily require co-funding. If something was important, our founder, just said, well, then we're going to do it. You know, we should do it and we should do it quickly. It's important. Let's go. Um, that had a couple of side effects. I mean, that was a great thing, very beneficial, both to the field, to the partners. It enabled a lot of mo um, movement, mobility, acting fast, but it also created situations where partners were often highly dependent on our funding and often created situations where we were the only funders and it was very hard to find other funders because the issue was tricky or not sexy or not interesting or politically sensitive. So we wound up in, in some situations where it's just really difficult to get other funders to come to the table. So if, you're, if you know you're going to close, thinking about that earlier in the process will help you avoid those sorts of situations. I see that because in a sense, if you're going faster than the other foundations, it's going to be harder to have partners in, in, in certain areas. It slows you down. Yeah, it mm. does slow you down. And so the first step is the planning for sure. But I also read a, a bit on the subject uh, in uh, the preparation for this episode. And some things that were being said is that you also have to prepare your partners that yeah. they will have to know that at some point you won't be there to support them. So they have to become like self-sufficient by the end of your lifespan. Is yes. that something that you had to do? Absolutely. So I knew I took this job in 2010 and I knew from day one that we would be closing. There was no secret. <clears throat> it was out there, um, but it wasn't widely talked about, even the, the rest of the team didn't really realize it. And even when I mentioned it to partners many years ago, they kind of, yeah, okay, well, right. Yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> you're going to close. You know, they, they just didn't really believe it. Um, and so we really had to start communicating very explicitly about it. And we, we started, we really made a mistake in the beginning by trying to have this very nuanced message, you know, which was like, oh, well, we're going to be closing and we don't know what will happen next. So you should behave as if we're closing and, you know, we'll prepare for whatever might happen. It was just so, you know, what people heard in there was, oh, I'm fine. And, and mm. so we, we had to 
change the way we were communicating. And this again would be a, a tip for someone, anyone else in this position is just be as clear as you possibly can. And now mm -hmm. the message is we're closing, your funding is stopping, there's nothing more. We say it a little bit more nicely than that, but you know, that's, that's, essentially, that's essentially the message. And years and years and years later of us communicating about that, I still, still frequently get asked, oh, but there's going to be something else, right? Mm. You know, they, they really just don't believe, or they believe we're closing and they believe funding is stopping for everyone else, but not for them. For them. <laughs> you know, because we've done such good work and the family really likes us and we have this personal relationship. And so just getting the message across in and of itself has been um, an interesting and surprising challenge. The other related point that you brought up is about a partner's ability to thrive when we're not here anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and that we have done really a lot to help our partners get prepared for that. We offered organizational development support. We offered fundraising support. We um, have done some leadership. We have a leadership training program, a leadership academy, mm -hmm. we call it, that's been uh, really appreciated. We've worked on sustainable finance mechanisms. And one of the main things we've done is very actively try to bring other donors to the table, either by making strategic introductions. And I spend a lot of my time talking to other donors, trying to understand what their interests are, where could we have overlaps, what sort of introductions would they welcome? Um, and in some cases, even you know, submitting proposals to other, mm. I mean, to ideas, not proposals, but ideas to other other donors like, well, we have this going on and we have this going on and we have this going on, you know, let us know if you want to pursue any one of those. And that often leads to something. So we were very active in helping our partners find other sources of funding as well, taking very seriously um, that, I mean, one of our definitions of success is that the, the partners thrive when we're not there. Mm -hmm. No funder wants the work to stop. No funder wants the partners to be in trouble once you need to pull out. And these are issues, whether you're closing down an entire foundation or simply pulling out of a funding relationship of any kind. That's really interesting. So from what I'm hearing, first of all, there needs to be a clear communication from what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Secondly, a good networking job through the potential donors that could continue the, the money raising uh, activities and a support to the organizational structures of your partners too. Mm -hmm. Like you talked about leadership, um, strategic financial planning or activities. That is, does that like take a lot of energy from your original mission once this is something that, that comes to uh, uh, full front? of the, the, the activities of the foundation? Well, we have a team dedicated to working on that so that it mm. doesn't detract from the work to achieve the mission in and of itself. Although this is an important part of achieving the mission. When you invest in organizational development, you're helping the organization be better at achieving what they're set out to do. Um, and so 
we have a dedicated team that we put some rather significant resources into um, mm -hmm. on the order of about $50 million over um, this six-year period that we invested in these sorts of things, the sustainable finance mechanism, the leadership, the organizational development. Um, and it, it does take time and dedication. It, it definitely does, but it's worth it. We feel it's an important investment to make to ensure that the work we've cared about and helped with over all these years can carry on once we're not here anymore. Well, that's a really interesting uh, thought because someone might be inclined to think, okay, we can uh, fuse uh, those two uh, missions at the same time, but you have committed a team exactly yeah. to that. Yeah. Uh, There are different ways you can do it. Some organizations mm -hmm. do it, you know, fuse them and do it together. We decided to do it differently, particularly for the organizational development. It's nice. I feel it's important to not mix um, a discussion on we're going to fund this program of work and let's make sure we achieve these objectives with, tell us about your strengths and weaknesses and how can we help develop, mm. help your organization develop. Those can be, it can be very tricky to mix those conversations and we try to keep them relatively separate. That is really interesting because for someone who is maybe in the top process of like doing a sunsetting process, Because I feel like this is uh, something that is being talked a lot more in the philanthropic mm -hmm. world. Uh, the fact that foundations should solve a problem by just giving away everything at once. Uh, it can't be done at like any kind of uh, rhythm. It has to be organized. There has to be a plan. And there has to be uh, like real energy put into that motion. But... As maybe my final question to this uh, uh, this topic, can we pose a question, what's next for the people at Mother Foundation or what is the uh, heritage that it's going to leave? Well, we, I think there will be a huge legacy that we leave behind, just the body of work mm. that we have funded. We have oriented our work in this past strategy towards creating communities of actors working together rather than mm. individual organizations doing their thing. And our hope is that those communities are now sufficiently bonded that they'll be able to continue working together. And I think if nothing else, having those bonds in the community is already something. But I, I think there will be a huge legacy in terms of the actual content of the work. Um, it, One of the things that, that we touched on just a moment ago in terms of the planning is just to make sure it was really important to me that there were no surprises. Mm. So we don't want to, you know, yank the funding overnight and leave people. And so we had lots of individual conversations with the partners talking about what do you need to thrive afterwards? How can we help you? How do we exit this relationship in an elegant and smooth way? The same exact thing applies to The MAVA staff. As you can imagine, it's a really interesting and tricky management challenge to lead a team of people who all know they're going to be losing their jobs. And, you know, we <laughs> it's a whole separate track of work to make sure that people are informed, reassured, and supported. And just like we want our partners to thrive afterwards, we want all of the staff to thrive afterwards. You know, mm -hmm. we don't want anybody to, to shift into 
you know, some, some completely different area because they couldn't find another job. It's reassuring to hear at least because that, that was like the purpose of my question, because there are people in that organization that will still live on after the organization yeah. Uh, yeah. disappear. But it's inspiring to hear because I, I feel like for some people, it might be a, a bit scary to say, okay, we put an end to our activities. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is that the legacy that is going to be um, ensured through that action is as much important as the, the existence of the foundation itself. I always try to finish with like a kind of a open more question, but uh, you've been into the world of philanthropy for a long time. And uh, do you see this kind of uh, model being more implemented in the future of philanthropic, uh, the, the philanthropic sector, I might say? I do think so. This has been identified by people who study philanthropy, I'm not mm -hmm. one of them, um, as one of the major trends in philanthropy is um, a, a more people designing their foundations with, with an end in mind. Mm. And I think we'll see more of that. And I think as we move forward, we know, we all know the world is so complex and <laughs> changing. Um, and I think we need to design our philanthropy with that in mind. It's really hard to say, we're going to do this and only this and have that be relevant going forward. The world mm. is changing. We have to adapt to it. And planning for limited life um, philanthropic structures is one way of being able to adapt to that. There are other ways as well, but that's one way. And I do think we'll see more of it um, in the future. I think it's more prevalent in the US and mm -hmm. probably as well in Canada. There's a very active uh, group of, of spend down foundations with the National Center for Family Philanthropy, for example, with, I don't know how many member members, but you know scores of them. Whereas in the European Foundation Center, they have 199 members and there are three spend down foundations. So it's, you know, it really hasn't caught on over here in Europe yet, but we tend to follow what happens <laughs> in mm. the US, but with some sort of a time lag. So who knows, maybe it will come here too in the future. And that is interesting. I, I was about to say, do you have an idea why Europe is not innovative and that's in that uh in that I way let's say, say that i wouldn't say europe is not innovative but it is not common to find foundations that have planned their own end mm. i understand i understand well honestly from what i can take away from what you you've said through that uh, conversation is that first of all if you intend to do that kind of process you need to have a clear plan mm -hmm. and a clear communication with whoever is um in that plan that, that seems to be yes. the most yes. important point that comes out of that. Yes, I think so. That you need to think things all the way through from A to Z and manage mm. for them. And it, it takes um, it, it takes what I would what I like to call compassionate leadership because mm. this isn't just a dry process. You know, it, there there are humans involved, there are emotions involved, it generates feelings. And you have to deal with all of that. I mean, it, it's very real. And I know that, I mean, we've done a lot of planning. It's very cerebral. We've done a lot of planning over all these years, but the closer we get to actually turning out the lights, the more and more emotional it is for all of us. And it's the same for our partners as well. You know, we've worked together with them sometimes as long as a, a few decades. So this is the end of an era, the end of a long journey, and it can't be approached in just a cerebral way. You need to, to, to deal with the whole package of... Uh, what it brings 
this has a, a different taste from that kind of uh, shutdown you hear from companies sometimes that just close their doors and everybody's in the streets afterwards. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I that's, feel that. you, yeah. I mean, keep in mind, we're a family philanthropy. You know, this mm. is the family where what we do is an expression of the family values. They wouldn't want to treat people that way. They, they're very interested in the welfare of their staff. It's very important to them that staff are treated fairly, generously, and helped along the way. So it's really an expression of being involved with, um, well, this family and probably many families. Well, that was really an interesting take on the whole situation. I really thank you, Linda. Um, it was really insightful and inspiring for those who might want to partake in that particular process. Sure. Yeah, I learned really a lot from other people who've gone through the process. So I'm happy to talk to anybody who might be considering it to help them through it. Perfect. We'll be sure to include every uh, socials that can be uh, of okay. use in the description. So thank you, Linda. Thank you.